Turn in your Bibles uh, to uh, the book of Mark. The book of Mark. Graduates, you can take your robes off if you like, unless you just... There's only a few times you get to wear them. But it does get a little warm. Uh, I can still remember some of the feelings I had uh, looming upon my graduation in high school. And every time someone asks you, what are you going to do when you graduate? And, uh, what kind of career you want to do? And this kind of this sense of panic would pop up like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't, you know, I, I don't know where I'm going to go. And, and I remember I started uh, seeking the Lord and trying to figure out how do you know God's will? Because um, I was really getting paralyzed. Because um, I started thinking, you know, wherever I go after, after high school, and that's where most people uh, form some friends that can last for a long time. In fact, that's where some people will, will find uh, the person they'll marry someday. And, and you kind of set a path of the next 15, 20 years of what you'll be doing with the rest of your life. And I'm thinking, how come I have to make this decision when I'm a 15, 16-year-old? It just doesn't seem right that I've got to make all these decisions when I barely know much about what I like uh, at that time. And I remember being so paralyzed uh, by that, not knowing what to do. And I would seek counsel from the others. And they said, well, the most important thing is to seek God's will. Like, okay. How do you do that? You know, I was looking for God's given very clear, specific instructions like, go to this school. Um, you know, do this job, uh, and it didn't quite work that way. Uh, and so what I wish someone had explained to me uh, when I was 16, 17, uh, and getting ready to go uh, to college is that it didn't matter entirely what school I went to. In fact, uh, you know, I did meet the one I was going to marry in college. I do have lifelong friends from those days. But I believe that in whatever place I went to, God would have brought someone in my life. I would have some friends. I'm thankful for the ones that God did bring in my life. You see, it didn't really matter so much what school I went to, what profession I did. What mattered the most is that in whatever place I end, I seek Christ first. And that was what God was kind of learning or teaching me in those days, that it I couldn't end up in any school, but if I was learning how to seek Christ first and making that relationship matter the most in my life, uh, then a lot of the other details and relationships would follow suit. Now, God put an impression in my heart about ministry, but that was not easy. And it wasn't on God's side to make it difficult. It was on my side. Usually when people say I, I complicate things, and usually that, what that means is I'm messing up their will uh, when I'm saying I'm complicating things. But I remember life being complicated for me, and the, fact of the, the simple fact was it was complicated because I didn't want what God wanted. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and, and part of that was I wanted to make some money. Um, I had a dad that was a pastor, and I didn't like the fact that every time I said what my dad did, they kind of had this mark on me of who I was. And I thought, man, you know, I finally have an opportunity to do something different uh, that someone doesn't automatically peg me for something. Uh, and so I had these, these thoughts, and, and I, I thought, 
I should go into newscasting. I, I mean, all they got to do is read, right? Read on the camera and they look good. You're like, man, that sounds, you know, <laughs> then I found out it didn't look good enough, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, what was going on in my life. And, and what uh, I learned is that what matters more than anything else, graduates, is that you can surrender your future and your relationships to Christ. And he's not, he's not going to tear you up. He's not going to ruin your life. And that was my thought. He's going to ruin my life if I surrender to him. And I found that it's been exactly the opposite. So let me just take you to uh, this passage in Mark chapter 8 that seems to identify exactly this, uh, but also that and much more. Mark chapter 8 uh, is kind of a, a pivot in the whole book of Mark. Uh, for the first eight chapters, Mark is uh, writing this book and, and, and kind of teaching us who Jesus is. This is who he is. He's Christ. He is God. He is the King. And so uh, in Mark chapter 8, you've got verse 27 through 30, this confession that Peter makes. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. And so from that point on, uh, Jesus is changing gears. Uh, he's in Caesarea Philippi, which is the kind of the Gentile region away from the pressure of the Jews. And it's the far north area of Israel today. And so he starts marking his, or marching his way to Jerusalem. And all along the way, in the rest of the book of Mark, he's going to tell the disciples what it means for them to follow Jesus. This is who I am. and This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And you're going to do the same thing. Uh, and so it's a, a, a pivot point. And so we're going to start with verse 31 and go through chapter 9, verse 1. And honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we, we stand as we read this together. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You may be seated. So Jesus makes this declaration using the title Son of Man, which is a, which is a reference back to Daniel 7, talking about Jesus coming as king. And he says, but this king is going to be different from all the other kings. I'm going to die. And it's going to be a bad death. It's going to be a bloody death. And the Pharisees, the Bible teachers of the day, are the ones who are going to do it. So Peter responds, 
realizing that, uh, just confessing, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of Man. This is the one Daniel 7 talks about that's going to reign and fix things and make things right. Nations are going to bow down. How can that be? And so Peter just says, no way. He, in fact, the word used here, rebuked him, is the same type of words that Jesus used for demons. That's what Peter's using on Jesus. So it's never a good idea to rebuke Jesus, but that's exactly what Peter does and says, no, don't let that be. That doesn't fit my idea of a king. That doesn't fit uh, what we have known as this Messiah. And so Jesus simply responds and calls him Satan. Uh, that's, you know you've been rebuked if Jesus calls you Satan. Uh, and so he says, get behind me. You're not thinking like what God thinks. You're thinking as a man thinks, which is that of comfort and convenience. And then he goes on, you notice in verse 34, he shifts gear. He says, I'm going to call the crowd now, to, and I'm going to say this not just to these innermost disciples, I'm going to say this to everybody, and the implication is he's saying it to us. Not just those that are in the room, but those are sitting here today, as we'll read this, he's giving this message to us. Whether we're graduating in every stage of life, he wants us to remember this and to know this. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the cross was like the electric chair of the day. It's kind of like get in that orange jumpsuit uh, of Gautanamo. Uh, it, it's a mark of when we do this, this is a bad death. This is a criminal death. This is a shameful death. And so that's what the cross has always represented. Uh, and then when persecution stopped, it was a symbol that we wear to this day. Uh, not really uh, connecting the dots with how it was culturally. Uh, and so Jesus says, this is what you're going to do. Come after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So here's the, the simple word. Jesus is saying you're going to have to surrender. If you're going to be my disciple, you just have to surrender yourself to me. And so he talks about later, whoever would save his life will lose it. What is this life he's talking about? The word used for life is the same word you see perhaps in your translation later on. It says, what is it profit man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That word for soul is the same as the word life here. What it means is not just a span of time. It's talking about your personhood. It's talking about your identity. It's talking about your personality. It talks about what makes you distinct as a person. And it certainly talks about your future. And so he's saying to you, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to surrender your sense of identity, your mark of distinction, your personality. You're going to have to give that up and let it be me. All right? Let it be me. Uh, and so then he's going to give some reasons why. And so that's what I want to look at. What are the reasons why we do this? Well, first of all, he says, for whoever would save his soul, his life, will lose it. Whoever would save his future will lose it. Whoever loses his life, his soul, his future, for my sake and the, and the gospels will save it. All right, so here's the first reason why we're to surrender our soul. Because our soul is only released by the love of Christ. Our soul can only be released by the love of Christ. Christ. And so here's the thing. We are going to this life. I see this with my children. It's kind of interesting watching them, how they each one of them try to find their distinction. You know, we, we have our personality. 
And then and that makes us separate and different from everyone else. But then everyone wants to get their niche. You see this in, in middle school and high school as they, are, they separate on the tables where they eat. There, there's this certain table. There's the, the jock table. There's the cheerleading table. And there's, they got their own uh, sections. And so everyone's trying to carve out their niche of who they're going to be. Uh, and so this is, the thing is, it, it never really becomes who we are who God has made us, we're always being pressured by an external force to be something that we're not necessarily, but we still want that distinction. And so what I mean by this, our soul is only released by the love of Christ. Notice what he says. He says, whoever loses, I say, would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, I may mean, surrender for the sake of Christ and the gospel. You notice it says, for the sake of Christ and the gospel. What does that mean? What is he saying that you surrender for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. So it's not just a set of ideas. It's not just uh, Jesus Christ and who he is and his identity. The gospel is that he loves you. That you are more sinful than you could ever really imagine in your life, but yet, through Christ, you are more loved than you ever dared to imagine. That this gospel teaches us this. And so when he says... When you surrender for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, you're surrendering for the sake of love. Uh, let me share with you kind of what this means. Uh, there's a, a letter I came across um, that was written uh, to a pastor. Um, and he simply is, is stating, uh, well, this w- young woman says this, a major issue in my life has been people-pleasing. I needed approval to be liked, admired, accepted. But for the first time, I was able to see how important it was that I identified with Christ. His love has enabled me to set up an emotional boundaries with people that I never could before. This has enabled me to love my friends and family for who they are and not seek more from them because I can find whatever is lacking in Christ. It's been a huge relief to finally feel free enough to love people. I know that in Christ I am safe and protected, and that protecting myself or standing up for myself is actually a good thing. So you see how the security of Jesus' love enables her to need less and to love more. To have love without neediness. To be able to set up boundaries because you're not trying to please them, but instead you're loving them. There's a big difference in what it means to have this love of Christ to come into our life that frees us up so we're no longer subject to these fears that we've got. And so when he says that if you're going to lose your life, you're actually going to gain it. Say all these things that you try to be for someone else. Isn't it amazing all you do for people who don't really love you? I mean, most of our days can be spent working and achieving to impress people that don't really love you. He says, give that up. Know that instead, I love you. And if you get the gospel's sake, surrender to that. It will free you up to really find life. So our soul is only released by love of Christ, but notice something else. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So he's given this other argument. Why should you surrender your soul? Because, well, our soul 
is capable of being wasted. Do you understand that you can gain everything, but yet lose something very precious to you? I can see this sometimes when we start living for ourselves. Let me ask, what does it mean to surrender your life? It simply is to love Christ and to love others. How do you know when you're pouring out your life and giving up your life? When you're loving other people. What did Jesus do here? He died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Well, because the Father told him to. Why? What was the point? To make many sons, many daughters to come into his kingdom and they needed to be forgiven. Do you know what taking up the cross looked like for Jesus? To do what it took to forgive a world. Do you know what it might look like for you to take up your cross? To absorb whatever cost to forgive someone. To absorb whatever cost to forgive someone. See, if you don't forgive, and you don't learn to go to Christ to absorb the emotional cost of it, then you start turning into the very ones that hurt you to begin with. To love people is how we lay down our life today and take up the cross the same way that Jesus did is what we're to do still. And it may be just as hard as forgiving someone or laying down your energy to help someone off. And so your soul can be capable of being wasted by living and making those small decisions that feed your own ease you could have a lot of things but have a hollow life a hollow soul we can be heartless if we start living for the things that are around us I uh, the other day we're getting ready to go and my wife informed me that I needed to do something with myself before we go she was on the other side of the room. She said, I can smell you from here. And just in case I didn't believe her, she started asking the others, you smell him? You smell him? Like, okay. So I guess I'll go change clothes. I, I needed something to uh, improve myself. Um, so I, I put on a, a shirt I had earlier. Because um, you know, I don't want to take a whole new shirt out of the drawer. Um, so I put this shirt on earlier. and We were out walking around and um, I think the lighting was different uh, where we were at as opposed to the lighting that was in my room. Um, because I looked down, I'm like, where'd this coffee stain come from? <laughs> and then I looked, I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I've been walking around. I was like, did that work? You know, am I, am I improved? Uh, from, yeah, at least I didn't smell as bad. Uh, but I had this, this stain that was just all over my shirt. Uh, and, and so then it was just a matter of, you know, how do you <laughs> go around just covering up the stain, you know, uh, trying to mask what's there. See, the thing about life is that there's this, this sinister, horrifying thought that comes to our mind from time to time, and it stains us, this, this inconsequential feeling. The, the thought that my life might just be inconsequential it, it, it may not matter what's right that there's sometimes we, we feel so small and life can be so futile sometimes and you think will anyone ever remember us 
And it's kind of like a, a stain that's in our heart, that's in our mind, in our emotion. And we start trying to mask it. And we think, maybe if I get more things, if I get more stuff, if I can make more achievements, if I can impress myself, my reputation upon others, that the thing is, this world, you can gain the whole world, and it won't be big enough, and it won't be bright enough to take away the stain of inconsequential sense in our life. So Jesus is saying, you can gain the whole world you'll still forfeit your soul. Why should you surrender your soul to Christ? Your sense of who you are, your distinctiveness to who Christ is. Because it's the only way that your life can make an eternal difference. Well, a few things worse to get a bunch of stuff, but all the while you feel your soul just seeping away. Your heart seeping away. And so he says, for the third reason, for what can a man give in return for a soul? Why should we surrender a soul? Because our soul is valuable and irreplaceable. He says, look, why would we trade? If anybody was buying souls, how much would you charge? The thing that we would charge other people, we freely give away our soul. Ah, pornography, adulterous relationships start compromising our life in greed, start taking advantages of other people. No one would, would say, hey, how much would you charge for your soul? We would, we would put some exorbitant price that no one would pay, but yet still we can freely give it away. By the little decisions that we make where we're not loving people and we're not loving Christ. And when it comes down to it, we're loving ourselves. All the moments of loving ourselves, a little things adding up whereby we're actually subtracting who we are. Do you understand? It's irreplaceable. It is immensely value. What can a man give and return for his soul, yet we will get addicted with the things of this world and lose our soul over it. And then he says this, this next reason. First, our soul can only be released by the love of Christ. And then our soul is capable of being wasted, so beware. Yet our soul is valuable and irreplaceable, but our soul can be uncomfortable unconquerable. In other words, uh, that nothing can take away if we relate it to Christ. It, it can persevere or it can be squandered. Notice how he says it. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So these two eras, these two ages, that we live in what's called the sinful, adulterous generation. This is the generation where, where all around us will be people living for all kinds of purposes. Uh, not, very few of them living for Christ and, and having their soul given to them. And so this is the era we live in. But he's warning us there's an age to come where the values are going to be turned upside down. And that is the age where Christ is, the, is uh, reigning in glory. 
there is a new day coming. And he's just giving us a warning. If you surrender to the age that you live in, where the values is about what is great for yourself, what is most comfortable, when new money comes in, it's about how can I increase my comfortable lifestyle as opposed to loving Christ. If that is the era you live in, be warned. The tables will be turned. And in that day, what matters then is will Christ be ashamed of you? And that is largely determined by if you are ashamed of Christ today. It's a funny era that we live in. In the last few years, I've uh, meeting uh, new folks that uh, really didn't grow up in church um, and coming to, to know them. Sometimes they visit here and they're kind of curious. Um, I had one lady said, uh, asked me, so can I just come in? Y'all, is it okay for me to just come in on Sunday morning? He's like, yeah, that, that'll work, you know. I'll tell you when. And, uh, and, but, you know, one of the things I've come in, in meeting them is uh, when I come to know them, we start to become friends and I share with them what it means to follow Christ. Um, I ask about their family, and uh, it's interesting. It's like I don't, it's, I don't tell my family that I go to church. That that would be bad. That that would be embarrassing. I uh, we just don't do that. In fact, <laughs> they're sometimes a little gun shy about me being on social media with them. You're know, like, you know, I just uh, don't want my dad to see you connected to me. Um, why is that? Well, the age that many of us, our people around us, live don't see church as any benefit whatsoever in their life. It's not anything that improves their social status. You get that? Some of you who grew up in church or been around older, longer, you understand there's a big difference there. Uh, it used to be, you know, you go to church to help improve your social status. That's not at all the case anymore. Uh, it is embarrassing. And it's funny because, I, you know, we have church kids, and they, they, it's the exact opposite. So they're like, you know, don't tell my, ba- my parents about what I'm doing, uh, you know, rebelling against what the children, parents are teaching me in some way. So I deal with some others that it's the exact opposite. Don't tell my parents how I'm seeking Christ. Because that would just be really weird and awkward. You see, it's the age we live in, but Christ has said there's going to be a day when this is reversed. Now, notice how it says here, the Son of Man. Remember, I referenced Mark, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 says this. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came on one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before me. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Peter thinks the Son of Man, that's what he thinks about. That's what the, the Jews of the day think about. And when Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he's referencing back to this. He says, you know that one you read in Daniel? That's me. The one coming where God's going to give the nations to this one. All dominion, glory, and kingdom that will go to this one. That's me. But you need to know that this Son of Man is going to die first, then resurrect. But there will be a day and time when the Son of Man will be exactly as it was told to them, and I will be looking for those who are not ashamed of me. It goes back to this relationship thing. Let me just share something with you. You are not changed fundamentally. Deep changes don't happen so much by what you know. 
deep, lasting changes happen by what you love. That's why someone can go to church and know all kinds of stuff about the Bible and about God and have the worldview and know the apologetics and know the reasons why, but they don't live for Christ. Or at least part of the time. Because they are changed by what they love. So let me ask you, what are your habits of longing? What are your rituals in your day? When you wake up, when you go, everybody's got rituals. These things you just do, you don't even think about, you just do them. Brush your teeth, hopefully, you know. Um, shower, maybe. Um, we've, we've got those things we do. You drink your coffee, you read your paper, uh, you know, open up your iPad or whatever. What does your ritual say about what you love? You understand that those rituals will form you more than anything else? Why does Jesus keep going back to this relationship thing? Because that's what's going to change you. If you're ashamed of me, the Father's going to be ashamed of you. What's that? Relationship. If you surrender your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, if that is the reason why, why? Because it's your love that will change you. You see, I had a, a professor that said to me, wrote on the board, Discipline is passion. Discipline is passion. The habits of your life are there because of the loves of your life. So what do you love? When he's, Jesus is asking me, lay down my life, take up my cross, and follow him. He's asking me to love him. But he, then he says, do it for the gospel's sake. What does that mean? Be so impressed and changed and enamored by the love of Christ. You don't ever get over how much Christ loves us. And part of your ritual that you have in your day is to see again, read again, where you are and where you stand before God and what God has done and is doing for us currently in the future. One of the biggest failures, I think, of believers in this age is that we don't know how to worship God personally. I'm not just talking about here, but when you wake up, when you go to bed, do you know how to seek who Christ is and be satisfied with who Christ is because if you're not satisfied with who Christ is you will be satisfied in something else because every day we seek satisfaction what will you seek it in and this is part of what personal worship is as we look at this C.S. Lewis talked about it this way he said give up yourself and you will find your real self Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. The death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. 
keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will be really yours. Let me say that again. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. So if you never die and you never give it away, you never really live. But if you can die, your ambitions and your dire desires and take up Christ. And whatever you give away in the process are the only things you can ever really keep. You have to give it away to ever really keep it. Because everything else that will be in our hands will turn to dust and rot and corrupt. But if we can give it to the hands of Christ, His hands are eternal. And there's nothing that will take it away from Him. So those things that are precious, you put in a safe place. No bank will do. I was just looking over my retirement, thinking, wow, it's amazing how much money you can lose. And this is supposed to be the safe thing. But the money you give to Christ, the life you give to Christ, the love you give to Christ, the day-to-day decisions that you do for someone else for no other reason but because God wants you to. Those are the things that only ever matter. Let's pray.